This is 1 Samuel chapter 13. I'm going to read the entire chapter. Hear now God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. Saul lived for one year and then became king, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were called to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops, like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal and all the people following him, trembling. He waited for seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you, for the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the army went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with him stayed in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash, and raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah to the land of Shuol, another company turned toward Beth Haran, another company turned toward the border that looks down from the valley of Zeboim uh, toward the wilderness. Now, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them, and the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. So is the reading of God's word. Let's ask that the Lord would indeed bless this time. Father, this is your word, which you have breathed out by your Holy Spirit, and you have passed down from generation to generation to our ears. Would you please be with us this morning? You do promise that your word would not return to you void, but accomplish its purpose. Would you 
accomplish that purpose this morning. Would you give us attentive ears and open hearts that you might transform us by your grace. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We live in a results-driven culture. We expect and demand results from our leaders. In the business world, if a CEO does not deliver results from his company, he is out of a job. Politicians promise results in order to get elected, and if they don't deliver results, they won't get reelected. And results are so important to us that sometimes, oftentimes, we don't even truly care how the results are accomplished just as long as the results are there. You might remember the TV character Jack Bauer from the hit show 24. And Jack Bauer was an American hero for a time because of his relentless pursuit of justice. Jack would do anything and everything to protect the country. He would defy his superiors. He would break all the rules. He was going to get the terrorists. He was going to protect the country. The ends justified the means. And the problem for us, beloved, is that this results-driven mindset, this expedient mindset that we're going to get results at whatever the cost, that has infiltrated the thinking of the church and even infiltrating the thinking of our hearts. Um, I believe that this is perhaps one of the greatest challenges that the church has faced and still faces today, even for a Bible-believing, Bible-loving denomination such as ours. It's been smuggled in like a Trojan horse in the packaging of trying to do great things for God, things that God says that he wants and that he desires. The history of the church shows that in the, the name of trying to advance the gospel and to spread the gospel message, Measures have been taken in order to accomplish that at any means. You can read the history of um, some of the revivals of our uh, past centuries where the gospel message was watered down, softened, the edges softened. Nobody wants to hear about sin. Nobody wants to hear about the wrath of God. Let's talk about the love of God. Let's emphasize that and nothing else. That's happened even in our own day when the gospel is corrupted or twisted in order to fit a, what we believe people want to hear. Or we want to fill our churches. It's a good thing to want to have people come and worship God. And so all sorts of measures are sometimes adopted in order to get people or to retain people. Uh, even at the expense of what God has commanded us. Or even peace and unity within the church. It's an important thing. God has called us to peace. We are one church. And yet sometimes that goal of peace becomes so preeminent and the focus that we pursue peace at any cost. Peace at the point of, well, doctrine. Doctrine sometimes gets in the way. It causes arguments. Let's, uh, let's cast aside the things that are non-essential. Let's focus on the things that are essential and leave everything else out. Beloved, this particular chapter in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 13, is an important one for us to consider because um, this heart of pursuing results, this 
uh, I'll use the word expedient approach to life is one that we are prone to. Saul was an expedient king. He looked for an expedient solution to an issue that he saw. And the Lord rejected him. The Lord said, you have done foolishly. And as an indicator of just how pervasive this thinking is to us, I think for, for a lot of us, even today, we might look at this passage and we say, we're confused. Like, what, what did Saul really do that was wrong? Like, why, why such the strong reaction from, from the Lord? You know, he was, he was in a bind. He had to take action. And the answer, beloved, is that our God expects and demands absolute allegiance to him. Obedience is a relational submitting to the Almighty God. It is a relational putting ourselves under his wisdom, his knowledge, his reason, and obeying even when it doesn't make sense to us. And that's what we need to hear today is that for the child of God, we must not, we must forsake the expedient way of thinking and, and living and follow the obedient path of living. Now, kids, I've used that word expedient. I want to make sure that you understand what that means. Expedient really just means I have an end or a desire or result that I want to accomplish, and I'm going to accomplish it whatever it takes, even if the way to get there is wrong or even immoral. And I'll give you an example. You're in your room and your parent walks in and they look at your room and they say, this room is an absolute disaster. Clean up your room. I'm leaving. I'll be back. I want to see this room clean. And they, your parent walks out of the room and you say, fine, I'll clean this room. And what do you do? And you open up the closet door and you start chucking everything into the closet. Dirty clothes, chucked in the closet. Books on the bed, chucked into the closet. Toys, chuck it in the closet. Everything just gets thrown in there haphazardly. You slam this door shut. Boom, the room is clean. I have accomplished the purpose. That was an expedient solution. Was it obedient? Was that what your parent was looking for you to do? No. They wanted you to take the time to clean it properly. You followed an expedient solution. And our hearts often follow an expedient solution when we look at God's Word and we cast aside what God is calling us to do rather than submitting to Him wholeheartedly in obedience. Now, we'll see that as we look at the life of Saul. And if, we, if you were here a few weeks ago when we considered 1 Samuel chapter 10, you may remember that Samuel had given Saul a few commands when he anointed him as king. Samuel had said, the Spirit of God is going to come upon you. You're going to see all these signs. And when that happens, there's a Philistine garrison near your hometown, and you need to attack them and defeat them. Do all that your hand finds to do. And then he says, and after that happens, I want you to go down before me to Gilgal. And he says, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. We're now three chapters later here in 1 Samuel 13. These things come to pass. Well, sort of. It's not Saul that attacks the Philistine garrison. It is Saul's son, Jonathan. Jonathan attacks, and he defeats the Philistine encampment, and he kicks the Philistine hornet's nest. 
He angers the Philistines. All of them hear about it. And the Israelites become a stench in the nostrils of the Philistines. And Saul says, well, it's time, it's time to get, <laughs> call everybody to battle. So he blows the trumpet and he says, let's go to Gilgal to fight. The Philistines as well, they mustered their army and they got prepared for battle. And I don't know if you noticed it when we read it, but there was truly an atmosphere of utter fear and terror. Uh, the text says that there were 3,000 Israelite soldiers. And as they looked out in the assembled Philistine army, they saw 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and so many soldiers, they couldn't be counted. They were like the sand on the shore. So many. Such a power differential. Not only that, if we remember what happens, at, what we're told at the end of this chapter, that Israel had been under such affliction by the Philistines that they weren't even allowed to have weapons. Philistines had oppressed them to the point where they said, "There's no, can't have any blacksmiths, no swords, no spears. These Israelites might attack us. So what had the Israelites done? <laughs> they picked up their farming tools, and they went and they said, I'm going to pay to have my farming tools sharpened, my axes, my mattocks, which is like a hoe with a handle, my ox goes, a sharp thing that goes on the, on the front of a cart so that an ox won't kick back. I'm going to sharpen my ox goad. Imagine preparing for, to fight against a massive army and you've got a shovel or a hoe, and that's your weapon when you're seeing swords and spears and horsemen and chariots. And they were terrified. They were utterly terrified, so terrified that they ran, and they hid. And so they hid in rocks and, and pits. Some crossed over, away from the Philistines, across the Jordan, and hid in Gad and Gilgal. And some of them were so terrified, they hid in tombs or in cisterns. Hence, that's like a hole dug in the ground to collect rainwater. So there's either water or there's mud probably in these places. They're hiding at wherever they could. And the ones that remained with Saul were trembling, he says. Now, from a human point of view, that's a reasonable response. They didn't even have the proper tools for war. They certainly didn't have the proper number of people. But we can't mistake the fact that this was a faithless fear. And that is the reality of fear beloved, is that it is often, if not always, faithless, where we forget who God is, forget God's promises for us, and they didn't have to be afraid. They had every, God had shown them his power. They had every reason to be confident in the Lord. They, they had just come from defeating the Ammonites, you might remember, uh, at Jabesh Gilead, they had that victory basically within their past, very recent past. And if they were worried about the numbers, they could have remembered the story of Gideon. Gideon, who the Lord said, you have too many people to fight against the Midianites. Keep whittling it down, keep whittling it down until all you have is 300. I can, I can beat these with 300. Sometimes it's like God wants to say, I'm going to show you how, 
how little I need in order to win this battle. Or even with the farming tools, they could have remembered there was a judge named Shamgar. You know, the book of Judges says that he killed 600 Philistines by himself by a single ox goad. They could have remembered that as they looked at their tools in their hands. And yet they were afraid. And they trembled. And they began to scatter. And so here's Saul at Gilgal, and he's seeing his army start to scatter, and he's looking at his watch or whatever he had at the time. He's counting the days. And it's, Samuel said he'd be here in seven days. It's been seven days. No, there's no Samuel. And wow, that's an, awful, that's an awful lot of Philistines. What if they attack? And he says, here, bring me the, bring me the offerings. Bring me the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. Let's, let's get this taken care of. We need the Lord's favor. And they bring the offerings. He offers the burnt offering. And as soon as he offers the burnt offering, Samuel shows up. And Saul hops up and he runs and he greets Samuel. And the first words out of Samuel's mouth are, what have you done? Now, kids, if, if your parent comes into your room and that's the first thing that they say to you, you know that something is very bad, something that you have done something wrong. Up to this point, Saul doesn't really seem to have any questions of conscience, does he? He doesn't seem to hesitate in, in performing the sacrifice. And when Samuel shows up, he doesn't, he's not ashamed. He doesn't run away like Adam did when he heard the Lord walking in the garden. He runs to greet Samuel. But by Saul's response... It's clear that, at least in his mind, he knew what Saul, Samuel uh, was talking about, what the issue was. It was in his conscience, because he immediately begins his defense of the sacrifice. Now, let me just pause right there and just say, brothers and sisters, I hope you love how honest God's Word is, how clear it is in revealing ourselves and the way that the we are, Saul is a perfect illustration of how we in our natural selves respond to being confronted by sin. And often we do not see it in ourselves. We see it in other people and we can see it clearly in Saul, but we don't see it in ourselves. And we need to hold it up like a mirror to understand the nature of being confronted with sin and how we ought to properly respond. Because what does Saul do? Saul blames everybody but himself. He points everywhere that he can. He's a, he's a victim to his circumstances. In fact, he's the hero of the story, if you listen to him. What does he say? He says, well, the people, the people started scattering, Samuel. You don't understand. I, I had to do something. And, and, and where were you, Samuel? You said seven days. What, what took you so long? I, I waited. And the Philistines, there's so many of them. They could have come and attacked at any time. And the Lord, I knew we needed to seek the Lord's favor. And so what did he do? I forced myself. I didn't want to do it, Saul, Samuel. I didn't want to do it. I forced myself. I was the hero. We got the sacrifice done. Beloved, that, that, is, the, that, is, that is a picture of how we far too often respond when we are confronted in sin. 
In our sin, we are self-deceived. Please implant that on your heart. We are self-deceived in our sin. Every one of us is fully justified for every one of our sins. Every one of us knows, believes in our heart that what we are doing is right. That's what Proverbs says. In a man's heart, all his ways are right. But the Lord tests the heart. And it is our nature to blame anyone and anything for our sin. And if I could impress upon you one essential truth from Scripture, beloved, is that you and you alone are to blame for your sin. And I and I alone am to blame for my sin. No one and no thing can cause you to sin. No person can force you to sin. No, it doesn't matter how good or how bad your upbringing was. It doesn't matter how people affect you in your family or in the workplace or in casual conversations or on the road. They cannot force you to sin. Nothing with, nothing that is part of who you are as a person, not your personality, not any diagnosed as a mental illness, nothing physiological like hormone imbalance or low blood sugar or any such thing. Circumstances provide the opportunity for testing. Uh, that's what uh, the Lord said to the Israelites. He said, I caused you to hunger in the wilderness that I might test what's in your heart, that I might show what's in your heart. That's, what, that's part of the value of fasting is that fasting takes away the normal things that we experience to reveal what's in our heart. It's not the absence of food or the, um, the excess of alcohol or um, the excess of whining around us that causes us to sin. That is our response to the situation that we are in. That, that's what Jesus meant when he said, it's not, it's not anything that goes into a man that makes him unclean. Now, he was talking about food, but that is true for our circumstances as a whole, the things that happen to us. We are, we are victims of our circumstance in one sense. But it, none of that makes us unclean. It is what comes out of a man or a woman that makes them unclean. For out of, a, out of the heart comes murder, adultery, covetousness, lying, theft. But beloved, that's such wonderful news. That is really good news. That sounds like hard news, but let me assure you that is wonderful news because if, we, if our obedience is dependent upon our circumstances, then that means that we are slaves to our circumstances. But that's not what God's word says. God's word says that sin is of our, ourselves and that's, what's good about that is that God forgives sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if the sin is of ourselves, we can confess it. But here's the thing. We, we must confess our sins. It takes humility to recognize this was my offense against the Lord. This was my doing. I wasn't forced to do this. It was of me, but such is necessary. 
for true reconciliation with the Lord, true forgiveness. It's an admission of that. But also, it's wonderful news because, well, let me show you a proof that this is, what I'm saying is true. The Lord Jesus Christ is the proof. He was a man made just like us, and he was tested and tempted in every way that we are. He endured circumstances far worse than anything you or I will ever endure, and yet he never sinned one time. He proved that we can face circumstances with obedience. And the good news is that if we are not slaves to our circumstances, then the Spirit of Christ, whom he has given to us, can teach us to be obedient regardless of the circumstances in which we, are, we, are, we face. So praise God for that. But we still need to ask the question, what was it that Saul did that was so bad, so offensive, because the Lord's response to him was so direct and so strong? Samuel said, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, for the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has commanded him to be prince of the people. He rejected Saul. Why? What was the issue? Well, I think we can summarize Saul's tragic folly in three parts. First, Saul, Saul's actions demonstrated a faithlessness, a lack of faith, a lack of belief in God himself. Saul, Samuel said, you have done foolishly. In other words, he said, you are a fool. You've been a fool. Proverbs or Psalm says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And beloved, that is not simply true for those who refuse to acknowledge God at all. That is true for us, even who profess the Lord Jesus Christ, who profess a faith in God. Because if we examine our hearts, we are honest. If you think about the times when you have sinned against God, I think you will find that at those moments, your conscious awareness your conscious belief, your functional belief in God has evaporated. God's not present. It's all on you to do what needs to be done. You've got to make a decision, and you're going to make the best decision that you can. In those moments, we're fools. We are momentarily amnesia, have amnesia and forget that God is and who God is and what he's promised because when we remember who God is and that he is ever before us, drives us to obedience. So that was one, there was faithlessness. But secondly, that faithlessness drove Saul and drives us to a foolish trust in our own wisdom and a rejection of the Lord's wisdom. God is infinitely wise and we were created in his image with the ability to reason. We were created in wisdom and knowledge and holiness and righteousness. But Romans chapter 1 is abundantly clear that as a result of the fall, our reason 
and our ability to reason has been corrupted. It says, claiming to be wise, they, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And that is the state that we are all in. We have a corrupted ability to reason correctly. You are fundamentally disabled from thinking with true wisdom, and our, our wisdom needs to be renewed what the words of uh, the New Testament writers say over and over again, be renewed in the image of our creator, be transformed through the renewing of our minds. Our, our minds have to be bent back to alignment with true wisdom. Well, what that means, beloved, is that there's because God's ways are not our ways and because we process things incorrectly, we will fundamentally look at the things of God the wisdom of God, and see it, it will appear to us foolish. We will reason that it's foolish. We will say, that, that won't work. That does, that's, not, that's not even good. And isn't that what we hear in culture so often? The things that God says are good, the culture says, no, not good. That's not going to promote the things that are necessary. But it means, and this is where humility comes in, it means that if if we are fundamentally broken in our ability to reason, we need to hold ourselves and our, our own reason with skepticism. We need to have a distrust of our own ability to process things correctly. And it, it means that we, we need to be very skeptical of our attempts to try to Handle God's word in such a way where we pick and choose what's important and what's not important. Where we might, where we tend to say, "Well, why?" Even even the question, "What what, is, what did Saul do here that was so wrong?" What we're asking a question. We could have simply said, "Well, God had commanded it, and that was enough." But we want to get behind that. We want we want to dissect it so we can have the kernel of truth, and so we can obey as much as we feel is reasonable. We want to question God and his, his wisdom and put ourselves on par with that. But the path of godliness, beloved, we know the verse. Trust in the Lord with all of our heart and lean not on our own understanding. It's not just because we don't have enough understanding. It's because our ability to reason needs correction. And that happens through humble submission and obedience in the mind to what God said. And these two things, this faithlessness and this faithless trust in his own reason, results in corrupt acts. Corrupt thinking results in corrupt acts. And in this particular instance, Saul's reasoning seems to have been that the act, he's like, He's dissecting the command to say, okay, Samuel said he was going to come and offer the sacrifice. Well, the important part, Saul reasoned, was the act, the sacrifice itself. The fact that Samuel said he was going to do it, that wasn't that important. And he missed an important truth that I think we miss. And that is that faithfulness is through a person. Faithfulness is through a mediator. 
Samuel was God's appointed mediator, the appointed mouthpiece of the Lord. He was the one through whom Israel interacted with God himself. And Samuel said, I will come and I will offer the sacrifice and I will teach you what to do. And Saul said, well, I can do the sacrifice and I, I, I can probably figure out what to do. And in that was folly, beloved. Obedience is not a bare adherence to facts, a bare adherence to rules. A true obedience is relational. We, we submit to God's law because it is God's law. We obey God's law because it is his, but we cannot fully obey it. We must obey it in Christ Jesus. And that's true for us with respect to coming to faith. We, we who are in the church understand that our faith, our true salvation, our our only righteousness is through Jesus Christ. We understand that from a coming to salvation perspective. But, beloved, do you know that's also true with respect to the good works that we are called to do? If you haven't read it, I encourage you to read the 16th chapter, chapter 16 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which talks about good works. It has some fabulous things to say about good works. But the reality is, is that even coming to faith, we are still dependent in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been given the Spirit to renew our minds so that we might understand the things of God and that we might have a desire to serve Him with all of our might. But we know that we're still weak and we know that we're still sinful and even our good works are still tainted with error and sinfulness. Our good works are accepted in Christ Jesus, not apart from Christ Jesus, as though Jesus sets us free and saves us and then we're off on our own. No, everything all glories to the Lord Jesus Christ. Even our good works are accepted only because of his perfect merit, his perfection. God sees his beloved son when we do what we do in his name and for his glory. And is that the reason why our good works are good? And so this is, this is the heart of the matter, beloved. This is, this is the issue. True obedience has three key components. True obedience is done in faith through Jesus Christ in obedience to the Lord's commands. And in our defective reasoning, we try to reason parts of that equation out. We try to say, well, certainly an unbeliever could please God when God says clearly, without faith it is impossible to please God. And we try to say, well, it's just, it's just the command. Partial obedience, I should get partial credit, right? No, only true obedience, full obedience. There's no such thing as almost obedience in the kingdom of God, beloved. And it all comes down to this, beloved. Obedience is a, is a relational act. It is an act of remembering the Lord Believing in him by faith and approaching him in the only way we can, doing the things which he calls us to do because we have submitted ourselves to him. It's a submission of the mind, accepting this gospel message, accepting this truth which comes to us and tells us we must change. 
And that submission of the mind results in a submission of the affections, which drives the submission of our will. And that, beloved, is what we're called to. That is what faith in Jesus Christ is. It's a submission of mind. It's a submission of heart. And it's a submission of will. And Saul did not have those things. And so the Lord rejected him. And he said, I am seeking after a king after my own heart. And we know how, where the story is going. And so we know, most of us, who he's talking to. We're talking about, he's talking about King David, who is to come. But if we think for just a moment, we know a little bit about David too. And that's instructive for us here because David, we know that he was a man who abused his kingly authority, a man who committed adultery with Bathsheba, a man who murdered her husband, and a whole host of other things that he did that were sinful. He was clearly not sinless, and yet the Lord declared he was a man after his own heart. What was the difference? The difference was David set the Lord before him always. He, sought, he feared the Lord, and that was the beginning of his wisdom. He sought to be obedient to the Lord, and when he sinned, he said, have mercy on me according to your steadfast love. Mercy to me. Blot out my transgressions. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation. That was the distinction, beloved. It was a relational adherence to God's will. But of course, David was only the mere shadow. I think the true prince that Samuel was referring to here is the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the Prince of Peace, and even the true King of Kings. And Jesus came to reveal perfect obedience from the heart. He was obedient, and he shunned the expedient. Oh, there's so many things, beloved, that clearly the Lord desired for his son that Jesus could have accomplished at whatever the cost. Surely the Lord calls us to adore and exalt the Lord Jesus Christ and to honor him. And yet, and, and Jesus, it would have been much more expedient for him to pursue the influential and the wealthy and to stir up their affections and to promote his honor that way. And yet, what did he do? He spoke the truth and he alienated the influential and he he challenged the wealthy, and they went away sad. Or Jesus came to bring peace, ultimate peace in his kingdom. And it would have been expedient for him to not heal on the Sabbath and not stir up conflict among the people. But what did he do? He healed on the Sabbath so that he could demonstrate that he was the Lord of the Sabbath. We could have rushed to Lazarus before he died. As Martha said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Jesus, in obedience, waited so that he could reveal that he is the resurrection and the life. And of course, our God would have every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It would have been expedient for Jesus to avoid Jerusalem, to continue preaching the gospel, continue to gather a following until every knee had bowed, or it would have been expedient for him to call down legions of angels to defeat the Romans and establish his earthly kingdom, and yet he shunned the expedient, the obedient, and he was accused 
and threatened, spit upon and tortured and crucified. And beloved, he did this for our salvation. Our salvation is dependent upon his obedience, his perfect obedience from the heart. And beloved, this, this is a gospel that is nothing we could ever conceive of. It's, not a, it, it's, it's far more glorious than anything we could ask or imagine. And our God calls us to receive it and to believe it and to walk in it. We, we must be skeptical of our doubts and our internal conflicts that we wage with God's word. We must receive it. We must let the Lord teach us true wisdom in Christ and to bend our understanding to him. Beloved, submit yourself wholeheartedly to the Lord, even when it doesn't make sense. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. This is the path to true godly obedience. He will direct your path. Because, beloved, the, the alternative is disastrous. There's one, and I'm closing with this, one terrifying little statement there in verse 12. It doesn't seem like much, but it is terrifying. I'm sorry, uh, not there. 15, and Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. Samuel, who was the mouth of God to the people of Israel, to Saul, Samuel, who represented the presence of God, who facilitated the relationship between Saul and his God. He turned and he left. Saul had taken matters into his own hands. He had forgotten the Lord, and the Lord left him to himself. And beloved, may it never be said so of us, because apart from him, we can do nothing, and apart from him, we are in utter darkness. But know this, beloved, it need not be the case for us because Jesus Christ has been given to us to be our light and our salvation. And in him, we can say, whom shall I fear? When I am afraid, I will trust in him. Beloved, for all who trust in him with all of our mind, with all of our heart, and with all of our soul, and with all of our strength, our King, our Lord Jesus Christ, has promised a sure promise. He says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. I am with you to the very end of the age. O oh, beloved, submit to him with all of your heart. Abide in him, walk in him, for he is our only hope of salvation. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your, your word, which is piercing and is true. Oh, Lord, help us to submit to it. Help us to glorify you. We want to glorify you. Teach us how to do so. And help us to have the strength to let our own preconceived notions go, that we might glorify you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.